2: I'm just gonna beg you that you have to come back to New York and do a show. All
1: right, let's
3: do it! When I come back to New York, you better answer the phone!
2: Hello, hello everyone. Thanks for being here. This is Repin, and I'm Evelyn, your host. My guest today makes me laugh, out loud, even when I'm alone in my apartment. Born and raised in London to Nigerian parents, she's a fantastically talented and award-winning stand-up comic. You've seen her on The Tonight Show, Last Comic Standing. She has two Netflix specials, and she's regularly featured on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. She's authored a book called Cack Handed, A Memoir. And she's also the creator, executive producer, and plays the scene-stealing best friend on CBS's hit, Bob Hart's Abishola. With all of this success, you'd think that she's had it made, but today she talks about her experiences with racism, being bullied, and the weight and pressures of cultural and family expectations. She also shares how she's transformed some of this pain to power, and how she's working to represent and change stereotypes. I'm so excited she's here. She's armed with humor and heart. Get ready. Here comes Gina Yashire. How are you? How have you been doing? I just want to take this opportunity to congratulate you on the tremendous amount of uh, projects and success (laughs) that you've had. You've got a great memoir called, and I need to slow it down to say it. Uh, If I say it faster, it might be something (laughs) else. It's called Cack Handed. Very careful. So, tell me a little bit about the book. And then I want to definitely go on to your other huge successes, which is a hugely popular and amazing show on CBS called Bob Hart's Abishola. So, let's first start with your memoir. Tell me a little bit about it. It's called Cack Handed.
3: Cack Handed. It's an old English term which means left handed. Cack handed also means awkward and and clumsy. A lot of left-handed people are considered to be awkward and clumsy, which I don't think is true. I just think the whole world is right-handed, 90% of the planet. And so that little percentage of us that is not, we are being discriminated against on a daily basis without people knowing. If that pens were made for right-handed people, force it, everything. If I'm at a bar next to you and I'm talking and I'm gesticulating with my left hand, I'm likely to knock over your drink, which is placed on your right. Not because you're clumsy. Because you're right-handed and the world revolves around you. So, and also another word word for poo, as in shit, is cack. And in many many cultures, the left hand is supposed to be the hand. Is the unclean hand. It's the hand that's used to wipe your bum. So hence, I think that's where the word cack-handed came from. I called the book that because, one, I'm left-handed, obviously, and two, the awkward and clumsy, I feel like my career and my life trajectory has been very awkward and strange and lots of twists and turns and ups and downs. And so that, kind, that word kind of encompasses most aspects of my life. So that's why I called the book that. Uh, it's a memoir. Mm-hmm. It's basically a story chronicling... The history of my parents, my, both my parents are from Nigeria, the history of Nigeria, how they came into contact with white people as in the colonizers and how that affected their history and how my parents ended up having to leave Nigeria as a lot of Nigerians do to find their fortune elsewhere because the uh, the economic status and a lot of, it was kind of made, much damaged by colonialism how they ended up in England how they ha- ended up having me and my siblings and then my journey from being born and raised in 1970s London running away from skinheads because it was you know it, b- people forget that Britain uh, they are the architects of slavery and colonialism and racism and they think that it's all so genteel and lovely whereas I spent my childhood running away from skinheads and and and, and stuff like that and, openly racially abused at school on the streets in my my first couple of jobs. But it's not all sad and lo- gloom and doom. It's a funny book as well. I'm a comedian, so I'm, I'm gonna inject my humor into it. So basically just tells the journey of being raised in London, what that was like, my mum's severe and crazy overprotectiveness, which if you've seen my stand-up you'll have heard yes. about uh in my set. And, and on all the you know the trials and tribulations of my life being a black gay woman in England how I started out as an engineer how I ended up in comedy all of that good stuff with some good sort of historical sort of stuff because it, it I am a comedian so
2: yeah yeah you're a great comedian and also let's let's talk about your hit show Bob Hart's Abishola. It's such a great sitcom Thank you. you were initially brought as a consultant yes. but you became a producer and a writer and now you are the scene stealing best friend <laughs> and i remember hearing you saying on an interview somewhere you were like i want that's like the best job you come in you drop a line and you're like peace i'm going out on vacation yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that sitcom it's an awesome fucking show gina oh, thank you tell me a little bit about what you wanted to bring to this show other than your like brilliant sense of humor.
3: I wanted to bring uh, authenticity. I wanted to bring a positive side of the culture. I wanted to bring a vision of Africans that had not really been seen before. You know, as a kid growing up, when when you saw Africans on TV, we were either hungry with flies landing on our forehead and people going, please give them money. These poor, pathetic people, feed them. That's the image of what Africans were, uh, when I was growing up and it's still very much to this day that we are so in need of the white man's help to to lift us out of poverty and, and save us from ourselves. We were either that or stupid like Tarzan movies right. I loved Tarzan as a kid because I didn't you know understand the concept of what was happening but when you grow up and you're looking back and you're thinking this so uh, this white man was in the jungle you know swinging around and the black people who lived in the jungle were animalistic. Dumb, boiling white people in pots, running around naked. So that's the image of Africans that was basically used to convince people that we were less than. And that's what I had to contend with through my entire childhood Just being laughed at for being African. You know, even other black people laughed at me. There, there was that divide between uh, Af- descendants of, you know, Nigerians and descendants of Caribbean people or Haitian people. you know, there was that because we'd all be miseducated to think that Africa was less than. So when I started in comedy, I always made a point of film about my culture because there was nobody else out there doing it. And I did it because I was like, in a way, it was kind of my revenge after years of being bullied and laughed at at school. I claimed my African culture when I started to reclaim it, because as a kid, I did try and deny it. Reclaim the culture, and it features a lot in my comedy, talking about my mum and my family and, and, and the differences between the, the cultures. For a while, I was trying to pitch a TV show with my family as a sort of a core base of it i was pitching a tv show you know about my life basically what the memoir is and that's going to come back because people are now interested in turning that into something so i was pitching to, to different networks trying to get a show made featuring my Nigerian family and nobody got it i got doors shut in my face left and center no one's interested and i kind of almost gave up on the idea and then i got this call. Cool from Chuck Lorre out of the blue My agent calls me and goes "Yeah, Chuck Lorre wants to meet you And I'm just like
2: Chuck Laurie?
3: Yeah I mean at first I was like Who? Because I'm terrible with names At the time I was a very busy touring comedian So I never watched a lot of television And my agent was like Go Google him you fuckwit And, and call me back So I Googled him And I was like Oh holy shit Big Bang Theory like, oh, Okay I know who this is Okay cool <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, know, I, I it just so dumb So anyway, I was living in New York at the time Happily living in New York I'd been in New York for six years Me and my missus had a lovely home there I was touring, I was get, doing my specials I was making a nice living And I was happy I'd had no plans to come back to LA Anyway, so I fly over to Los Angeles For this meeting With Chuck, I walk into a room It's Chuck Laurie, it's uh, Al Higgins And Eddie Gordetsky, who are the two Except producers that he works with a lot on most of his shows so I walk into a meeting with them and basically cut a long story short Chuck is like okay so I love Billy Gardell and I in my head I'm like who and then I look I look behind and I saw his eyes kind of shift over my shoulder I look behind me and there's a big poster of Mike and Molly on the wall uh which is another of Chuck's shows, and, right. my, and Billy Gardell is the lead actor and a wonderful comedian also. Yes, he's amazing. That was the star of Michael Molly. He goes, I love Billy Gardell. You know, Michael Molly's finished. I want to make another show with him. So in my head, I'm like, well, what the fuck has this got to do with me? But obviously, I'm not saying that in the room, in my head. It's all going on in my head. Like, yeah. Internal, internal voice. Internal voice is like, what What does that got to do with me? And then he said, well, I went to Africa recently, and I met all these beautiful people. i traveled all over Africa. I met all these beautiful people. No, I don't want to make another Michael Molly. I, I have this idea. Nothing's written down. Uh, I have no idea what, how we're going to do this, but I want the female protagonist to be of African descent. Nigerian, because I'm going to say Nigerian because when we started looking at Africans, Nigeria is the loudest, and most obnoxious country. He didn't say that. I'm just saying. <laughs> he just basically said that Nigeria just in, kept coming up in the searches. And the reason why is because Nigerians are extremely uh, forthright we are the loudest of the african countries we, we are considered obnoxious by the other african countries we're just the loudest so basically nigeria came out from their searches so they were like okay let's make the female protagonist opposite billy Gardell nigerian so i'm thinking so is that what, what you want me here are you planning for me to be that person and chuck looked at me and went mm, not necessarily and i was like in my head i was like "Well, no, what the fuck am i doing here to cut a long story short, he, he says, uh, Look, we are three white guys. And if we're doing this show, that with this woman and her family, which to me, it, and Chuck was making, wanted to make it as an antidote to the Trump nonsense that was going on at the time. This show is needed. And he's like, well, look, here's the thing. Uh, if we're going to be creating this show with this Nigerian woman and her family, we're three white guys. We don't know anything about Africa, Nigeria, the cultures, the people, what her family would like. And that's where you come in. We'd love you to be sort of a a consultant on this to help us get these things right. So in my head, I'm like, "A fucking cons- an African consultant? This sounds like utter bullshit. In my head. <laughs> Not in the room. In the room, I was like, "Okay, oh, interesting. please tell me more.
2: Again, it's good, Gina, that you're differentiating between your outside voice and your inside voice. I think that's a good thing.
3: Absolutely. So in my head, I'm like, ugh, this is just ridiculous. And also, I've been burned before where I've gone into meetings and I've given ideas and I've talked through stuff. And then the people have never called me back. But then I've seen my ideas implemented yeah. on a TV show with the same executive that I had a meeting for three years later with someone else who's younger and cuter than me. Yeah, that sucks. So that's happened to me a lot. So I I was very skeptical because uh, obviously I've been burned so many times, and I was like, "Consultant, you want me to consult on all things African? This sounds weird. I have no interest." But in the room, I'm like, "Okay, interesting. Please tell me more." And I was like, "So where did you guys find me?" And I'm expecting them to say, "Oh, we did a deep dive. You know, we've seen your Netflix specials. We know we've seen your Def Jam set. We've seen you on the the Tonight Show. We've seen you on Leno. We've seen you on the Daily Show." Right. And they went, oh, we, no, what we did, we typed Nigerian female comic into Google and <sighs> and that's how we found you. So now I'm fucking furious. <laughs> in my head, I'm like, you, you, I was like, this is the epitome of white privilege here. you flown me first class, by the way, because I insisted on a first class ticket and they put me in a five-star hotel. So I'm like, this is white privilege right here. You guys have flown me right. across the country, first class, on a whim and a Google search. <laughs> Jesus. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm, in I'm in the room and I'm like, okay, fine. This this sounds weird. But I'll, I'll hear them out and then I'll go. So We'll discuss a little bit further. And I was like, okay, well, thank you very much. And I left the meeting and I call my agent and I go, Please tell them thank you, but no thank you. I have no interest in this. This just sounds weird and exploitative, and I don't want to put my name to something that could definitely ruin the work that I've built up in my career, right. representing my culture properly. I don't want my name attached to any bullshit. So I'm going to say, you know, thank you so much, and no thank you. And my agent was like, I'm going to give you a day to think about it. I'm not going to call them immediately. <laughs> 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 this is I'm fucking knowing you. But luckily, I have friends and family, uh, people around me who have no, n- no qualms in telling me I'm being a dumb bitch when I'm being a dumb bitch. My best friend <laughs> Lila in London and my younger brother Edwin both called me. Uh-huh. It was like I was being screamed at in stereo from across the pond. They're, they're both in England. All my family and friends in England. They called me up and screamed at me for two hours, saying, are you an idiot? <laughs> this is such glory this has been your dream to have a sitcom to be in a sitcom and here's an opportunity landing on your plate and your pride and your ego is about to fuck this up you've been complaining for years about the lack of opportunities for, for black women in this industry and lack of opportunities for you even though you're more the talented than half the white guys that you came up with and here's an opportunity landing in your lap and you're going to say are you dopey so basically, they screamed at me for two hours. You have good people around you. Good people. And I was like, okay, maybe you've got a point. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I grudgingly conceded. And I called my agent up and I go, all right, I'll give them a couple more days to convince me. Let's tell them I'm uh, there was a preliminary interest. Let's do that. So I'd flown in on Sunday from New York for a meeting on Monday and my flight was supposed to go back to New York on the Tuesday. So they changed my flight and they're like, just stay an extra couple of days and go in a room with them and just see what they want. Chuck has a production office at Warner Brothers in Burbank. So his office is there. So I go over to the office the next day after the meeting and I sit in a room with them and I, you know, and I, and it's me, Chuck, Alan, Eddie in this room just just talking and they're like, well, tell us about yourself. So I'm basically just giving the background of my culture and what it meant to be a, a British person born outside of Nigeria and how I've always kind of straddled those lines. Not being accepted in England, but also not being accepted by Nigerians. And and it's a similar experience for Nigerians born outside of Nigeria who are born in America and raised in America. Right. Right. Uh, so we're talking about that. And they're like, so what would this family look like? And I was like, so I basically couldn't help myself. The creative juices started flowing. And I kind of liked these guys. I felt like, you know, they were genuine and trying to actually do something good. So then I start creating characters. I'm like, okay, so what do you want the name the characters we... Come up with the name Bob for Billy Gardell's character. Very easy. I'm like, well, that's an easy white guy name. What do you want to call the Nigerian female protagonist? And they're like, "Um, we're thinking Lupita. So I'm like, Lupita. I was like, you guys really need me. Okay, let me explain a couple of things. I know you're saying Lupita because of Lupita Nyong'o, who's a wonderful actress. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then you've seen her in 12 Years a Slave and and Black Panther. (laughs) I completely get where you're going with this. Here's the thing. Lupita is Kenyan. Wrong country. She's from Kenya. We are doing Nigeria wrong sides of the coast, like opposite sides of the country. So let's nip that in the bud. Furthermore, Lupita's parents were travelers they traveled the world a lot i believe they were diplomats and lupita was born in mexico and her parents gave her the name lupita for shits and giggles and i was like i can pretty much guarantee you there is not another african on this planet called fucking lupita because it's a spanish name so we're not going to call her lupita they fucking needed you, Gina. They needed you. They anyway, So I'm like, here's a list of Nigerian names. I'm going to go with the Yoruba tribe because that's a tribe I'm more familiar with because I was brought up in London and Yoruba people seem to make up the majority of the Nigerians that were around me and my mom, and even though my mother herself is not Yoruba. I'm going to pick Yoruba names and the Yoruba names are also very phonetic, so they're easy to just read the letters to pronounce the names. No weird throat sounds, no GB, you know, no, there's no... <laughs> it's just Abby Shola. It sounds exactly how it's spelled. And that's exactly, the thing. yeah. you're about names. So I, I, I picked the names and I helped them create characters. And and after two days, Chuck called my agent, you know, Chuck's people called my people. And they were like, Chuck has decided to forget this consultant thing. We need Gina to help us make the show. We want her to stay. So they upped me from a consultant who would have just got like a flat fee and then thanks very much for that bye to a producer and actual, you know, a part owner of the show. As you should be. Exactly. So I got up to, up to a producer and right on the show. So that day that I was supposed to go home that Tuesday, I ended up making my underwear last nearly three weeks. <laughs> because My two days of underwear start, lasted three weeks because I ended up staying <laughs> for three weeks in a room with these guys and we wrote the pilot.
0: Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
2: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favoured children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
3: I helped them create the characters, create the name, do all of that. We wrote the pilot, and that was it, we wrote the pilot. And then at the end of it, Chuck was like, thank you very much, Uh, we're going to give this to CBS and see if they're interested. Here's the thing, CBS will be very interested in this because it's a very good concept, and we will probably come back and do a pilot next year and start casting. Now, while we were creating the the characters, I'd already had in my mind, I'm going to create a best fan character and I want to be that best friend because the best friend role is always the funniest role in every sitcom. I don't want to be the lead role. I don't want to be a love interest. I want to be the crazy funny friend. That's always been my dream as a comedian. So when we were creating the characters and writing the pilot, I created this character who was a woman on the bus who rode to work with Abishola every day. And Abishola would come on the bus and and go, there's white guy chasing me. What do I do? Kind of thing. So she would be the the confidant. And while we were creating the show, I was like, yeah, we need a confidant for Abishola. I think we need a confidant. So I created this woman. So when we'd written the pilot, and Chuck was like, okay, you are (laughs) going to go back to New York and we'll wait and see what CBS says. And if we do start casting it, if You know, they'd obviously had chats thinking, oh, my God, right, we, we brought this girl in to help us write the show. Uh, she's obviously going to want the lead role of Abishola. Who wouldn't? <laughs> so he comes in and he comes to the room. He goes, okay, so if we start casting this show, if this gets picked up for pilot, here's the thing. You're going to still, if you want the role of Abishola, you're going to have to audition. We can't just give you the role. You're going to have to audition with other actors if you want the role of Abishola. And I looked at Chuck and I was like, I don't want Abishola. And uh, Chuck and the guys were like, huh, what? He must have been so confused. Yeah, so confused. I pointed to the whiteboard. Now, at the time, Kemi didn't even have a name. She was just called Woman on the Bus. She had only, I'm going to say, two lines in the entire uh, pilot. But the best two (laughs) lines. But they didn't know what she was going to become. I knew what she was going to become because they hadn't Googled. They hadn't done the deep dive on the Google and they didn't know what I was bringing to the table. So I knew that Kelly's only got two lines right now, but I know that once they see what I bring to this character, she's going to be in every episode, which is exactly what happened.
2: Brilliant. But anyway,
3: so when Chuck says, what, you don't want to have a show? I was like, no, I want, and I pointed to the whiteboard, and I went, I want woman on the bus. And Chuck look, looked at me and he was like, you are very fucking smart.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Everything that you're saying is literally all around brilliant from a creative standpoint, from a business standpoint. And also the the other thing that I want to point out that I don't want to like sort of gloss over is that through it all, you maintained your presentation of who you are, what you're about, and you're bringing it onto screen. One of the great things about this show, Bob Hart's Abishola, is that you cloak the show with humor. Yeah, yeah. But it informs audiences about, you know, immigrants, interracial relationships, Nigeria. And, you know, I think it's such an important, important show to have, especially in times like these, where you debunk and break down stereotypes on multiple levels. I think your character on screen, too, is just so uh, their friendship is so endearing. Their relationship is so But man, your character is such a pisser. You just drop it and you're like, go. And the other thing that's really brilliant about your plan of being the woman on the bus is that you don't have to be on set every day, girl. <laughs> you could just like kick it in sweats in the back, produce, and then go on, do your own thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not been an easy, an easy journey. Staying true to myself and, and, and sticking to what I believe. I didn't want to squeeze myself into a box. You know, when I first came to America, my agents would try and send me for auditions where I'm playing Amer- African American characters. And I'd be like, uh, I'm a comedian first and foremost, actor comes second. Right. I'm a comedian who can act. And what I have is, is, is different and special, and I want to ut- utilize that. Right. Ricky Gervais is Ricky Gervais in every show that he does. Russell Brand, when he came over, is Russell Brand in every movie, every the same character because they want to bottle that special thing that he has. And I was like, I've got that special thing. right? So I refused to turn up for auditions to play the security guard on How I Met Your Mother. I don't want that. When I went with my aide, my agent who I'm with, who I've been with for the last oh, six years, I remember when my first meeting with him. I was like, you're going to be very frustrated with me because you guys are going to be sending me lots of auditions and 95% of them, I'm not even going to respond to the email because I'm waiting for that special thing. I don't want to just do throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So eventually someone will see me for my talent and what I can bring and then it's, it's all systems go. And if that doesn't happen, then I'll keep doing my own thing.
2: Okay, but here's where I challenge you. And let me just say, I fucking love that you just said that. So when you have this perspective of like, here you are, you're trying to make your mark in entertainment, which is a brutally difficult industry. Brutal. It's fickle, it's volatile, but I love what I do and I'm sure you feel the same way. Absolutely. Nonetheless, when you go in and you're like kind of getting these opportunities, right? What like gave you the commitment or the perspective where you were secure enough in yourself to say, look, I'm getting all these auditions and it's super easy to say yes. And it's tempting as fuck, right? Because it's money. It's an entry into the business, which is so hard to break into. But you said, look, I'm going to turn down 90% because, and I'm going to quote one of your routines just so you know, I'm not bullshitting (laughs) that I love your work. You didn't want to play ghetto hoochie number three from the left.
3: Exactly.
2: So what gave you the, what? I I don't even know what you call it, the uh, the confidence, I guess, within yourself to say, I'm going to wait and see, I'm going to wait until there's a project where I can bottle who I am and be seen.
3: It took a long time. It was not only just, you know, confidence and courage. It was also, I don't want to do something and do it badly because it's just not for me. And I just didn't feel that, my heart would be in doing these roles and I wouldn't bring it anything. I know what I want to do and I have a vision of what I wanted to do. And yeah, some people, you know, my, my brother, when he was screaming at me to take the Chuck show, he was like, you're blinkered. You've got blinkers on. Do you know what blinkers are? No. What are they? Horse racing. When they race horses, they put those black yes. leather patches on the sides of their heads. Right. In England, they're called blinkers. And they're so that the horse cannot see right. the other competing horses. All it's looking is the finish line, forward right. the finish line. And those what blinkers are. And so my brother was like, you are very blinking. You have your eye on what you want to do, but you're not seeing opportunities coming at you, coming at you laterally, coming at you from different directions. Right. And I've always been like that. Like when I want to do something, I focus laser energy on it, and that's what I want to do. And then if it doesn't work out, I go, okay, I will turn my blinkered vision to something else. I've always been like that. So when, you know, I had a vision of what I wanted to do, and I was like, I don't want to be doing these little bit parts. I've, you know, I'm a stand up comic. I love doing my stand up comedy, and I'm, I'm starting to build my way. I'm, I'm making my own specials because, you know, the two of those three specials you see on Netflix. They were not given to me. I put my money where my mouth is and rented a theatre and rented a crew and sold tickets and made those specials myself with my own money. So I've always been a hustler. I was like, I'm going to hustle and make it any way I can using what my own skills. I'm not going to compromise who or what I am to fit in anybody else's images of what they think I am. It was a mixture of confidence in my ability, confidence in what I were to do. And also the fact that I was like, I don't want to do something that I don't really want to do and then just do it badly because that doesn't help me anyway. Right. Then they'll just look at, you, oh, she was really shit when she played that security card. We won't have her back again. Right. That was always my thing. And I stuck to that until my brothers were like, yeah, and my brother and my best friend were like, yeah, that is a great thing. But now you've got to make sure that you open yourself up. Right.
2: It's just hard to find that balance sometimes, you know, to be laser focused in your vision because you know who you are and what you're capable of and what you want to do. But, you know, I often say on this show, it's not enough that you're self-realized and self-assured. The unfortunate thing is that we have to contend with how the world and others see us
3: exactly,
2: and that we have to break through that. Right. So I think you're doing a lot of that with uh, Bob Hart's Abishola and also your, your stand-up, the show is also a love letter to your mom, yes essentially, right? Yes. In terms of the work ethic that she instilled in you. But there's something else that I wanted to kind of get to that you had mentioned in previous interviews. You had mentioned that you had faced racism from both sides. You're being told that you don't fit in on either side. So what were some of the things that you learned coming up
3: I spent my youth trying to fit in with people, you know, trying to make myself smaller so I could fit in. And it didn't work. And I discovered early on it was never going to work. And then I went from, okay, I don't fit in to, all right, I'm going to be the crazy scrappy kid and just fight everybody. It was like a... A metamorphosis of sorts. So it went from the kid trying to be everybody's friend to all right, that's not going to happen. They just all right, I'm going to just anybody just looks at me funny, I'm punching them in the face, and that way they go all right, we can't bully her because she's crazy, and that's what I became. And then I later on I was like, I can't keep fighting everybody, and then I sort of developed my humor, you know, to deflect from situations where I'd get into fights, and so the humor has been a backbone to everything in my life. Yes. When I'm in uncomfortable situations, I use humour to break that up. When I'm meeting new people, then I've sort of learned to navigate different social situations like that. Always being myself, always stuck to that. I was like, well, you know, I can't be what everybody wants. I I found that very much when I got into this industry. I was never pretty enough or never young enough or never, you know, light-skinned enough. I, I never quite hit those. So I was like, well, then... I'm going to have to circumvent that stuff and just keep doing what I do. And hopefully the talent and my hard work and me just out there, just putting fingers in pies and trying to make my own thing that will come through. So it's always been about being myself, working as hard as I can and just taking every opportunity I can and making something out of nothing. Right. And that was my mother's work ethic when she came to England you know she was a qualified teacher my father had a phd he was a lawyer and uh, my mother couldn't get a job in the teaching industry in england because it was so racist so she okay well then i can't teach i'm gonna i'm gonna try being a secretary for a while okay i'm gonna do this oh, oh you know what i'm gonna set my own business Importing stuff from nigeria and selling it to the nigerians here and just and getting bags and suitcases and things of and doing my little markup and selling it to my fellow immigrants. And she just parlayed that work ethic into something else that she could make work. And so I I learned from that.
2: Can you share a story where the situation was difficult? It was hurtful. How did you use it?
3: Yeah, I mean, what really shocked me was not the racism from the skinheads on the street when I was a kid, because my mum would, you know, raise us all and goes, okay, we're in England. When you hear these people are frightened of us, they just mind yourself when you walk in the streets. You see the bad boys, she's calling the bad boys. You, you don't look them in the eye, you turn away, you you know. What shocked me the most was being abused by my fellow black people, you know, of Caribbean descent because they'd been miseducated to what African people represented. And they had, didn't have the knowledge that they had actually come from Africa. They thought that they were Caribbean. They were like, nah, I'm not African. I'm Jamaican, you're African, you running around the jungle, you're family, but I'm Jamaican, I was like, they didn't know that black people weren't in Jamaica, they were stolen and put there. But this was the complete obfuscation of history that the Brits and Americans, or the Brits specifically did with such a aplomb. But anyway. There were various various hurtful situations where I'd be at school, and I'd be hanging out with a bunch of, you know, I tried to make friends and I remember I used to hang with this group of girls and all, uh, us black girls would hang out together and have fun and we'd, we'd sing the whatever pop song was on the radio, we'd learn the, the raps and whatnot, and it was great. But then if I had an argument with one of them, the entire group turned on me and it happened on a regular basis. And that was very hurtful for me because I'd be like, I only had an argument with this person while, and then they'd shun me, they'd call me names. You know, these are my friends, you know, who they'd all turn on me at the same time and call me names. And then I'd be on my own for a week until the person that I had an argument decided, okay, I'm going to talk to you again. And then they'd all come back to me. And that featured a lot through my for my school days. And that, you know, is not very good for a person's self-esteem. Of course not. Yeah. To constantly know that you're on tenterhooks the entire time. Right. That if you say one wrong thing to one person in this group, your friendship group dwindles to nothing immediately. That happened a lot. And I'd be like, oh, one day you're going to beg to be my friend. One day. Now, I didn't know that I was going to be an entertainer at this point. I thought I was going to be a doctor because my mama told me I was going to be a doctor. But I always had this thirst for to do everything well and be successful in whatever I did and I was like one day I'm going to be cool and you guys are going to want to be my friends and those friends I kind of left behind because I changed school at 16 and then at the new school I became a new person I changed my name from Regina to Gina because Regina they, they changed Regina to Regina which became Vagina so it's my first school Not only was I an African kid, I had a name that sounded like female genitalia. I was never going to be cool at that school. Right. And at 16, I left that school. I went to another school. That's where I became Gina, the cool kid. At 16, it took till I was 16. Got to another school, changed my name. I went to a school that didn't have a uniform. By that time, I was getting little part-time jobs so I can buy my funky little clothes and make my little outfits. And I became the cool kid at this new school, which completely changed my life going forward. I never want it to go back to that life. And in fact, for the first couple of years at that new school, I was terrified that I'd be with my new friends and bump into someone from my old school go, you're not Gina, the cool girl. You're always going to be vagina. And for the first couple of years at my new school, I was terrified of bumping into anybody that I knew from my past life because I completely created a new life. Right. I became an entertainer, became very well known in England. And I remember all those girls that used to call me names turned up. <laughs> I didn't know till after the show because had I known that they were in the audience, I'd have said to the sound guy, turn the light up because it was a 2000 a sold-out theatre. Right. I would have gone, turn the lights up. You bitches, you made my life a misery. This is why. And I would have done 20 minutes on them. <laughs> but luckily they were smart. They didn't let me know that I was coming before the show. And they all came and surprised me in my green room afterwards. And I was like, look at you bitches. (laughs) You used to laugh at me and call me names. And now you're coming to my green room to surprise me. Oh my gosh, my good friend from school, look what you become. You know, that was a very good full circle moment. Obviously my
2: career is is not experiencing the highs that you are, but, um, you know. I've been in
3: this business 27 years, so hang in there, mate. Your time's coming.
2: I hope God's listening to you, Gina. <laughs> so your mom wanted to, you to be in academia, which I also can understand. I don't know if that's an immigrant thing. Definitely. And you also were supposed to be a doctor. Yeah, those
3: are the things that my mom picks, yeah.
2: So I don't know if it's like a, an, an immigrant thing or whatever it is, but the, what I wanted to get to is the weight of expectation. Nobody ever wants to disappoint anyone they love. Absolutely but you have to stay true to yourself. So how did you contend with the weight
3: of expectation to be the person that you are? It was very difficult. Uh, You know, my mom wanted me to be a doctor and she told me that from the age of three years old. And I didn't realize I had a choice. And even though I... My my spirit erred towards performance. I remember a drama teacher at school when we were allowed to do drama. We were allowed to do drama as a subject up until the age of 13. And then we picked our options. And my mum was like, forget this drama. You're going to do biology, physics. So she picked my subjects. But up at at the age of 12, I remember my drama teacher saying to my mum at the parent-teacher conference, your daughter, Gina, she's the class clown. She's always entertaining people because at that point I'd started learning to use my humour to deflect from confrontation, but also... I'd use it to disrupt classrooms. <laughs> to make my friends laugh. I would do anything to make people laugh, which meant getting myself into trouble a lot. But this drama teacher was like, look, look, I can see through Gina's class clown persona. She's actually a very talented performer. And I think, you know, maybe get her into an acting school or something like that, that might be something good for her. And my mother looked at this teacher with complete disdain and went, yes, uh, Gina can act like a doctor until she becomes a doctor. And that was the end of that fucking conversation. Duh. The weight of expectation was heavy on my shoulders. In a way it helped and in a way it didn't. I'll tell you how it helped because my mother spent so much of my childhood telling me I was gonna be a doctor, telling me I was intelligent, that I strived to, you know, to make all of this come to fruition. She used reverse psychology on me by telling me I was clever, that I was intelligent, that I was smart enough to be a doctor. Even though I was misbehaving at school, I always made sure my grades were on point because my mum told me I was clever. So I've obviously got to be clever, which means I've got to make sure that I've got these grades that show her that she's right, but to call me clever. It, that reverse psychology worked for me in that way. But in another way, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I got to bad when we had to cut open rats and shit in biology, I was like, I can't stand the sight of blood. This is not gonna work for me. I always thought I was gonna be a doctor. And and that pressure, you know, she never let us go anywhere. She never let us go to parties. She never let us hang out with friends. She never, because she was always books, 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 you study, you're gonna be this. Right. And it got to a point where she drove me to a suicide attempt at 16.
2: Oh, Gina.
3: Oh well, yeah, I, I got into, it's a mixture of two stories. So it's the pressure. I'm I'm doing my exams now. So we do these exams, which then lead to advanced levels, which will lead to a university degree and so on. So these are the first exams that you do at 16 years old in England, which will tell you whether you're gonna go on to A levels, which then leads to university, or you're gonna leave school and go and get a job, or whatever, or you're just gonna to have to repeat the exams because you've had them. Very important exams. You do one in each subject. And it was exam time, and I was, I, you know. Luckily, I'm blessed with a good memory, so I leave all my revision to the very last minute. But luckily at the time, uh, exams was very much about memorising shit and regurgitating. It was not a lot of uh, coursework over the course of the year, which was great because I'm not la- I'm lazy, I procrastinate. So I can re- memorise shit very well. So it was exam season and i 16. So when you're coming in to do your exams, you don't have to wear a school uniform so you could wear your own clothes. So I, was the, I felt like I was the shit. I was getting to school in my non uniform, dressing my funky colors, and going, doing my exams, and then going home. It was a beautiful free time because I didn't have to be in school full time. We'd come in just for the exams. I'd just done an exam that I'd known I'd passed. I think it might have been the French exam. I love languages. And I got to do French by convincing my mum that a bilingual doctor would earn more money. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm coming back to my French exam. I loved languages, so I knew I'd pass that exam easily. I'm strutting through the playground, about to leave. And that was one exam, eight down, let's go. I got teased relentlessly for school for being African. A girl leaned out of her classroom. She was in a class. She was a year younger than me, so she was not doing an exam. She was in a maths class. She sees me stride through the playground, looking all confident in my red jacket, matching red pants, matching red shoes, matching red headband, because I'm a stickler for colour coordination. She leans out the window and screams at me. Oh, look at you. You think you're so nice. You're African this, African that. And started abusing me through the window. And I'm thinking... I'm doing my exams. I'm minding my own business. You should be in your classroom studying. This is not recess. I'm just heading out through the playground to head home, and you're abusing me. You're in your classroom, and you're you you you're so affronted by my happy strut that you have to abuse me from in the middle of your own lesson. Right. Cut a long story short, I stormed up to that classroom and beat the shit out of this girl in the middle of her maths lesson. Oh, shit. The teacher who I remember was a Moroccan teacher. So he was North African. He did nothing to stop me beating the shit out of this girl. So I don't know whether he, deep down, he was like, beat that bitch. I'm an African too. You know, fucking calling us names. You, you get her. Or he was just, he was a very mouthy and annoying child. So maybe he was just like, I can't hit her, so I'm going to let this kid hit her. And then, yeah. I don't know what the reason was, but he just stood by and watched me beat the shit out of this girl. And at the end of it, he kind of just tapped me in the shoulder and was like, "Okay, go." And I was like, "Cool." And I strutted and went back home. But uh, he snitched, though. Obviously, he's a teacher; I don't want to lose his job. He snitched, and I was reported to the head head of the school. Right. I get called in the next day, and I hit this girl so hard in her arm, and I wasn't punching her in her face. It was all body stuff, but. You know, it was years of frustration and anger at being being teased all the time and called names. I unleashed it on this girl. I dislocated her shoulder. Oh,
2: shit, Gina.
3: Yeah, I dislocated her shoulder.
2: Holy shit.
3: I get called in the next day by the head and go, and they're like, yeah. Now, I was doing these exams. And when I passed these exams, I was going to stay on at the school to do my advanced levels. I didn't want to stay on at the school. I wanted to go somewhere else and start my new life with a new name. But my mum was like, this is a good school. You're staying at the school. So I got called in by the head. She goes, you dislocated this shoulder. Look this girl's shoulder. Uh, you are no longer welcome at this school. So... And I was like, but can I finish my exams? Because in my head, I was like, if I don't get to finish the exam, I'll never become a doctor. I'll never hear the end of it. And she was like, and to my relief, she was like, yeah, you can finish your exams. here. Yeah, we're not going to expel you and stop you from doing your exams. But after you do exams, you're going to have to find another school or to go to because you're not welcome back here. And so uh, I went home. Obviously, my mum got the call. My mum screamed at me for hours. Now, in my head, I was like, I'm still doing my exams. I'm still going to pass these exams. I'm still going to do my advanced levels. I'm still going to become a doctor. I'm just going to do it at a different school. And I didn't want to stay at this fucking school anyway. You were the one that were forcing me to stay at the school. So actually, this has worked out for the best. Just find me another school. But my mum was just so, because she had her plans. She had her blinkered plans. I was going to stay at that school until it was time for me to go to university to study, to do, get a degree and become a doctor. So... She screamed at me for hours, just abuse, abuse, abuse. And it was the last straw. I was like, I have studied. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. You've stopped me having any kind of social life. I've had no friends because of you. You gave me a name that has made my school life a fucking misery. And now you're screaming at me for defending myself against this abuse. I'm done. And I went upstairs and I went to the medicine cabinet and I took a bunch of aspirin. Luckily, it was aspirin and not. And not paracetamol, because it, we used to take both for headaches in our house. Oh. If I'd taken the paracetamol, we would not be having this conversation right now, because I would have died at 16.
2: Oh, that's just a tremendous amount of pressure for you to feel like you had to resort to that.
3: But I, luckily, I went for the aspirins instead, because <laughs> that was available. And I swallowed a bunch of those and lay on my bed and waited to die. But aspirins don't do shit. <laughs> you, know, you know, you watch movies and you think, oh yeah, I'm going to swallow these pills and then I'm going to drift off into a sleep and die peacefully. And then I'm going to haunt my mum forever. That was the vision of what I w- was going to happen when I took these pills. But that was not to be. Thank God. I took these pills and I, I just lay there not being unconscious. And I'm like, when the fuck are these pills going to kick in? That is a horrible story. But <coughs> at the same time, I'm so incredibly <clears throat> grateful that
2: you are here with us and you're going to have to come back and do another episode. But Gina, will you sign us off? Let me know who you are and what you represent.
3: I am Gina Yashire and I represent tenacity, not giving up, not letting people dictate what they think you should be, sticking to your gun, sticking to who you think you are, sticking to your true self and not listening to the naysaying fuckwits.
2: Thank you, thank you to Gina Yashire for guesting on the show and for using her talents to break down stereotypes and create positive change. You have got to keep up with this amazing talent. Check her out on her website. You can see her on social media and catch her on tour. You know I'm gonna be getting my tickets. I'll have all of her links in the episode description for you. Next up from Netflix's huge hit, Lock and Key, actress Genevieve Kang because not seeing yourself represented in the media. For me at least, I really struggled then to um,
3: accept parts of myself. Hi, this is Genevieve Kang. I'm coming to Reppin.
2: If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Check out past episodes because there have been so many awesome people who have guested. The conversations have been personal, positive, and powerful. Get them on your devices, so download them all and have them in your pocket. And leave a review. For me and all of the podcasters out there who work to bring you these shows, hearing from you and your reviews mean the world to us. You can put them on Apple, Good Pods, Spotify, or wherever you're getting the goods. And you can always reach me on social media. My Twitter handle is Reppin Podcast and Instagram is Reppin underscore podcast. Always thanks to my squad for helping me bring this series to you. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time. Be well and safe and stand up and represent.